and I have uh, lied again to Paula, our children's ministry director, who has come into my office as she does every week as she's putting together the coloring sheets for all the kids, and she asks this question, what passage are we going to be in this Sunday? What's the big idea? So that I can find something appropriate for our kids for this Sunday. And I go, oh, we're wrapping things up this Sunday. And uh, I lied. We're not. We're going to have one more week. So, kids, I really hope you enjoy that Genesis 50 coloring sheet, because we are getting a lot of mileage out of it. Uh, But we're going to tackle chapters 48 and 49 today, and you're going, my goodness, that's two whole chapters in the Old Testament. Wow. Well, they fit together pretty well. Before we do that, I want to highlight just a couple of announcements. Uh, I'm grateful the kids have done a great job of staying out of the areas that are being landscaped outside. And tonight at our business meeting, which is at 5 o'clock, and it'll be here in the sanctuary so that everyone can spread out uh, well. Uh, Tonight at 5 o'clock, we'll have our annual business meeting. We'll talk a little bit more about the options that we have for future uh, landscaping to finish what we've started out here. We knew it was going to look worse before it looked better. And uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that. But the kids have done a great job. I'm very proud of them. Operation Christmas Child uh, is uh, in full swing. We have boxes here for you. And inside is a packing slip and a rubber band, some great information about what can you put in your box, what should you not put in your box, and uh, where the boxes go and what they do. The boxes are not only an extraordinary gift to children who may otherwise uh, not have an opportunity to receive the gifts inside. But the most important part of these boxes is that each one represents an opportunity for the people who work with Samaritan's Purse to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope that comes exclusively through him in corners all over the globe. So let me encourage you to take a box, take a box or two boxes or three boxes or however many uh, may interest you They are due back on Sunday, November the 15th, which is two weeks from today. So uh, we have two more weeks to get those in, and that's before we even put up our Christmas decorations. Now, I went to Cracker Barrel in July, and I think they've already decorated for Valentine's Day. They've just (laughs) zipped by already. Uh, And Sam's Club, uh, somebody went to buy candy at Sam's Club yesterday. Uh, Pat Milligan was saying, yeah, we wanted to buy a bag of candy. And uh, had to decide, do we choose the bats or Santa Claus, right? Uh, uh, We have just all headed straight toward uh, Christmas. But uh, this is why we're here early, because they need to collect these so that they can distribute these. Um, Let me encourage you to take a box uh, today. We're going to have a new members interest class coming up here in a couple of weeks, again on uh, Sunday, November the 15th. We've had a couple of people ask about that. So downstairs in my office before the Sunday morning service, that'll be at 9.45. I'll have some documentation for you so that we can look over what it means here at Rocky Mount Bible to be a member and uh, how to do that in healthy and uh, thoughtful and biblical ways. So just be aware of that if you're interested. That'll be Sunday, November the 15th at 9.45 in my office. And if you have kids and you want to bring them with you, that's fine. The game room is next door. They can Uh, shoot hoops or play air hockey or color or play with Legos. They've got lots of options down there. Uh, Again, let me just highlight tonight at 5 o'clock here in the sanctuary, we'll have our annual business meeting. There are some very important things that we need to take care of at that meeting, including, but not limited to, voting on elders and deacons, approving a budget for next year, uh, finding out how the budget is working for this year, 
and uh, being caught up in general on what's going on here as a church, uh, especially with uh, COVID and the changes that we've made in order to adapt to life under COVID. Um, things have looked differently in 2020 than they have in years past. So we'll address ever so briefly our thoughts moving forward as we try to engage normalcy and uh, get back what we are allowed to get back in responsible ways. But let me go ahead and pray for us as we shift gears now into Genesis 48 and 49. Father, you reveal yourself. It's one of the most spectacular wonders that our minds are allowed to enjoy here on Sunday mornings as we open your word, that you have made yourself known, that you are a self-revealing God, that you haven't hidden yourself in the dark recesses of the universe, but you have confronted your creation with who you are and what you want from us. And in this revelation, we have discovered that you are altogether kind, that your unsurpassable power your genius, your magnitude is rivaled only by your kindness and your love and your willingness to engage we, these poor old sinners, entirely dependent on you and what you've done through the cross of your son, Jesus, who is the Christ. Make us grateful. Expand our hearts and minds for an even greater picture of who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Having a child is exciting for a number of reasons as we think about uh, where this baby is going to go in our house and uh, how we're going to arrange things. And my goodness, uh, we have one of those little outlet protectors left in the house. And I pulled that sucker out the other day and threw it in the trash can, oh, I don't know, maybe three or four months ago. And I thought, we're done. Wow. Think about it. I don't need to have... Oh, God. All right. Back to Walmart uh, for another box of those things. <laughs> Let me tell you, they're all getting thrown away as soon as possible this time. This is, uh, you know, at 37, we get to name the baby uh, any older than that, and I'm pretty sure God gets to name it. Uh, but I do really enjoy uh, thinking about baby names. And uh, I love when people pick good biblical names from the Bible because you get to reflect on who those individuals are. It's like a mental biography being generated in your minds. Sometimes, uh, and <laughs> I have a real terrible problem of putting my foot in my mouth, uh, somebody will say, oh, we named our son, uh, we named him uh, Jonah. And I think to myself, have you ever read the book of Jonah? He's a miserable figure. He does almost everything wrong. He has a heart in opposition to the will of God. And, and I find myself saying this out loud. And I go, oh, no, they just named their baby Jonah. Shut up, buddy. Uh, <laughs> maybe don't, don't say that. Uh, <clears throat> even churches, right? Uh, I love this. Uh, I met the guy who pastors uh, Corinth Baptist Church. And I thought of all the cities you could have named your church after Corinth, really. Like, buddy, have you ever read 1 Corinthians? Those people were miserable. And he goes, whatever, you named your church after Rocky Mount. Who are you to talk bad about anybody? And yeah, all right, fair enough. But I love working through all of these names, and this week we're going to work through an awful lot of names. And let me tell you, there are some really impressive names here. Uh, chief among them is probably Jacob. Jacob is an incredible figure. And Jacob is the one who is running the narrative through all of 48 and all of 49, because we're getting really close to the end here. Jacob is about to die. And the story of Jacob, which has taken up the better back half of the book of Genesis, is about to come to an end. 
So when Jacob dies, there's not much narrative left in the book as a whole. There's several hundred years of silence before we get to the book of Exodus, which Moses will record. In fact, this is where we pick up. Moses is the next great figure in the history of the nation of Israel that we're exposed to in the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. So Jacob figures prominently here, and Jacob is doling out blessings. This is what we're going to find throughout all of 48 and all of 49. Uh, it's like Oprah at Christmas, right? You get a blessing, and you get a blessing, you all get a blessing, right? He's just blessing everybody. And it would be really tempting for a moment to think that in Jacob's great participation in chapters 48 and 49 and all the blessings that come out there, that these chapters are all about Jacob. But it's not true. In fact, these chapters actually have very little to do with Jacob himself. Jacob is just the conduit, having been blessed by God and representing the power of God Jacob is now blessing those around him. It is much less a story of how Jacob blesses his family and much more a story of how God is blessing his chosen people. In fact, this is really a story of providence. Providence. So find uh, the little piece of paper that came in your... Uh, seat today that was there, right? You see some sermon notes. If you don't write anything else down, I want you to write down a definition here for providence. We have talked often of God's sovereignty, his total, unquestionable, royal power to rule over all that he has made. That, I think, is a workable definition of sovereignty. But providence is different than that. God's providence and God's sovereignty are not totally interchangeable. In the entire time that we've been working through the story of the life of Joseph, we've been talking about God's providence. What exactly have we meant? And we defined it here at the beginning, and we'll define it again at the end. If we're looking for a definition, and uh, in just a moment, we're going to start lining up the animals side by side <laughs> to get ready for our trip on the boat, uh, all right? But it's okay, we're talking about providence. There was providence in Noah, too. Maybe we'll go there next. I want to give you this workable definition, providence. And I've used a bunch of P letters here to make it a little more memorable, hopefully. It's God's plan, and here are the two workable parts of this, purposefully and powerfully applied. Providence is God's plan purposefully and powerfully applied. Almost every time in the Old Testament and in the New, when we talk about the providence of God, we see him working behind the scenes to arrange his sovereign plan. The two emphases that jump out over and over and over again is that it is intensely intentional, that it is purposeful, that it's not random that it is happening exactly how God would have it happen. It's purposeful. And the second thing that's almost always highlighted, both in the Old Testament and the New, is God's power. God's power being wrought in the execution of that plan. This is the providence of God, his plan. And we've seen this play out here in the life of Joseph. Purposefully and powerfully applied. 
And in these two chapters, we'll see both of these aspects of God's providence play out very, very clearly. Let's go ahead and start in chapter 48, verse 1. We're going to move through it fairly quickly. All right? After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And just note there the order that they're named in. Manasseh is the older one. Ephraim is the younger one. Manasseh is the one who should receive the birthright. Ephraim is the one who would receive a half of that amount of portion of the birthright blessing. And it was told to Jacob, your son has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength. That's the other name that God has given to Jacob. He summoned his strength and he sat up. You can tell these are the last days. The word there is a yeshiv, it's dwelling, right? He one point dwelled in the land of Goshen. Now he dwells in his bed. He is an old man. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, God Almighty. This is one of the great monikers for God, especially before the Exodus. It's used over and over again in the book of Genesis. And if you go back to, I think it's Genesis chapter 17 when it's used for the first time. God Almighty El Shaddai. It's a reference to God's total dominion and power, unparalleled in the universe. Galactic power. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Big promises, right? Huge promise. It's something the Egyptian people may not have understood. You remember it's only just a few years earlier that Joseph had come to their aid. That he had provided through the seven years of storing up grain in the good years enough food so that when the seven bad years came there was enough to feed all of the people. But one of the ways that they paid for that food was by forfeiting their land. Not so for the Israelites. The blessing pronouncement that comes from Jacob is that God will give his people up there in Canaan a land and it will be their possession and no one will ever take it away from them. And now your two sons, verse 5, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they're mine. They're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Did you see something there? That when we're introduced to the two boys at the beginning of the chapter, it's Manasseh and Ephraim, their age order. But now Jacob has started talking, and he has switched the order. He's named the youngest one first and the oldest one last. That's not the first time this has happened in the book of Genesis. Let's keep moving on. And the children that you fathered, verse 6, after them, they shall be yours. Now, these first two are mine. Any other kids, those are yours, Joseph. And they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go, and Ephrath, and I was burying her there on the way to Ephrath, that's Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Who are these two boys? Well, he's just named them. He knows who they are. It's unlikely that having lived there for 17 years, he didn't know who they were. But this is an old man, and his eyesight is failing. We'll 
see that named explicitly here in the next few verses. But I think something else is happening here too. There's probably a legal element to Jacob's question. Do we know exactly who these two parties are? He's about to adopt them. There's a formal legal ceremony that is about to happen. We need to know exactly who these two young men are. Joseph said to the father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. Well, father and son have both acknowledged it's God who's working all this out. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. And so Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And then Joseph removed them from his knees and, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. It's a stunning reversal of what was prophesied way back there in Genesis chapter 36 and 37, right? Uh, remember the prophecy of the elevation of Joseph and the dream of all these sheaves bowing down? Well, now the son is bowing down to the father. And, and in a much more real sense, it is the son bowing down in acknowledgement of the providence and sovereignty of God. They have all been brought low in humility. They are all in perfect acknowledgement that God is the one who has orchestrated their lives in this history of Israel. And Joseph took them both Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and he brought him near and then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of this is the hand of blessing it should have gone on who? Manasseh, the older one and instead he switches it over and he stretched it and he laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn and he blessed Joseph and said the God whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the boys it's a fun word that he uses here the, uh, the narim right the, the young lads um, it's a word that Jacob uses of some regularity, but he only uses it of four different people. Anybody want to take a guess who those four are? The first is Joseph, his favorite. The second is Benjamin. It's a word that's been reserved exclusively for his favorites, and now he uses it for Manasseh and Ephraim. None of the other sons are named. These are his boys. These are his lads. He has embraced them as his very own, his favorites. And let them in my name be carried on and in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim and it really displeased him and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, dad. I understand how old age has maybe wearied your eyes. But this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father Jacob refused and said, I, I know, my son, I know. Uh, he also shall become a people, and he shall be great. Nevertheless, nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. 
and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you. The implication being there, even if I'm not, God will be with you. And he'll bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. You're blessed, son. You're blessed by the portion that I have given you. You're blessed by my love and you're blessed by the presence of God. Now, let's make just a couple of notes here because something really interesting has happened and we don't want to pass it up for just a moment. It is extraordinarily interesting here that two Egyptian-born boys have now been given land in Israel. Now, look, I know this has never happened in the history of Rocky Mount Bible, but at some point in your life, maybe with some other preacher, you have gotten bored in the middle of a sermon. And I know what you've done. You've gone to the back of your Bible and you have flipped through all those charts and maps, all right? So I'm giving you permission now, and we're going to pretend that it's not because you're bored. Go ahead and turn to those maps in the back of your Bible and take a look at that. Jacob has sons. There will be 12 tribes, 12 of them, that will come from the sons of Jacob. Now, almost all of you have some maps there in the back. Go ahead and take a look at, I'm almost sure all of you have one of these the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we know some things. Of course, we can add up all those sons, and we know that Levi, well, there's a tribe, but he doesn't get any tribal land when they move back into Canaan. But if we take a look at the upper right-hand corner on the eastern side of the Jordan River, you'll see east, what? Manasseh. And if we cross back over to the western side of the Jordan River, you'll see west, what? Manasseh. And right below west Manasseh, there in the center, uh, very close, just above the tribe of Benjamin, do you see a land apportioned to somebody there? It starts with an E. It's a land apportioned to who? To Ephraim, right? Well, here we all along, you knew from all those boring sermons that the promise that was made back there in Genesis 48 actually came true. That hundreds of years later, when the people were taken out of bondage in Egypt and they were taken back into the land of Canaan, the land that they had once escaped because of famine, but is their inheritance now flowing with milk and honey, that land was given to both of those boys. Egyptian-born boys with an Egyptian mother whose grandfather worshipped the Egyptian gods. Well, now this grandfather has given them land forever, an everlasting land, we're told, that can never be taken away from them. It's a startling turn of events in the lives of Manasseh and Ephraim. But what's really interesting here is that Manasseh didn't get the larger portion. Ephraim did. In the ancient Near Eastern world, when inheritances were passed out, it was the oldest son who was given a double portion of what all the other sons were given, and for a really important reason. The firstborn received all the honor. The firstborn received way more money, way more land, way more prestige, way more dignity, and, and way more responsibility. 
It's the firstborn who bore the responsibility to become the new patriarch, to take care of his father's widow, to take care of his brothers and sisters, to lead the family, not only politically and socially and economically, but to lead them spiritually, to lead them in righteousness according to the laws of the God of Israel. So that's why they were given more, more responsibility. It means they're going to need more material to care for the family. It is a huge honor to be the firstborn. It would have been perilously devious to bypass the firstborn son and to give that larger portion to any other son down the line. But that's exactly what Jacob's done. He's adopted these two boys formally. They're going to get his stuff. They're going to be counted among the firstborns. But, but Ephraim, the younger, is going, why? Why does that happen? In fact, it's not the first time it's happened in Genesis. Do you remember the startling relationship between Cain and Abel? Or Isaac and Ishmael, the reversal there? Or Jacob and Esau? Jacob, the schemer, has stolen this birthright? Or uh, it shouldn't be, I suppose, that alarming to Joseph because there were a lot of other brothers before him, and yet he's the one who is his father's favorite, the firstborn of Rachel, I suppose. But he's absolutely incensed. Why would you pick the younger? Well, I have one idea as to why that's possible. That in the providence of God, that he does this purposefully arranging a thing. We see this reversal play out several times. Why? It is proof that the Lord our God is the one who is pulling the strings and it is proof that sometimes God favors the weaker, the younger, and the less important. For his providential plan, sometimes God favors the weaker, the younger, and the less important. David is not the great grand warrior of all the brothers in his family. But who does God use to slay the giant Goliath? Little David, who should have been out tending the sheep. Uh, this is a theme that we see repeatedly throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New, that God, in his wisdom, we see that in 1 Corinthians 1, often chooses what is foolish to the world to do extraordinarily wise things. Sometimes God proves his gloriousness by exacting his providential plan not through the mightiest but through the weakest not through the ones that we would have chosen i.e. Saul but through the ones that he has chosen like David God goes out of his way to work out his providential plan sometimes with the weakest and the smallest of them all think about in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when Moses is writing about the nation of Israel he says, and I chose you and I loved you, not because you were the greatest of all the peoples on the earth, but because you were the smallest. I chose you to glorify myself in you because you were so weak. The only way that you could be successful is if a very powerful God was behind you. In fact, the most powerful God of the universe, right? It says something startling about God that he's able to use the weakest, the youngest, 
the ones who are cast off, the ones who are afterthoughts, the ones who are set aside. Well, we learn some things about how God uses providence here. First, we learn that God is active. God is active. God is playing a part in the role of the life of Israel. Sometimes we don't understand all of his plans, but he's not the uninterested watchmaker. You'll remember the great thinker from a couple hundred years ago named William Paley came up with an illustration to make a teleological argument for the existence of God. And he said, well, here we have proof that a God must exist. We call him the watchmaker. The watchmaker has made this elaborate watch like the universe and he's set it in place and then he's let it run all by itself. And the early deists of the post-enlightenment era there in the early colonial United States who loved the idea of a God but in no way thought of him as personal, most of these deists loved this illustration of the watchmaker, a God who made the universe and set it in motion and then backed away and left us all alone in history. But the God of the Bible is not an uninterested watchmaker. He's involved in every plan. He's involved in every room. He's in every meeting. He's in every agenda. It is all being brought to bear because the God of Israel is there and he's present and his providential plan is being worked out in all the minutiae of history. He exists in every facet of what is being wrought out in the nation of Israel. The second thing we learn is that God's providence is sometimes indecipherable. What seems foolish to us is wise to the all-knowing God, but it's never arbitrary or capricious. Now, you can go back and question all of God's decisions leading to here, but we've seen how they've worked out for the benefit of Israel, haven't we? All the things that God has done in Joseph's life, which to us seemed arbitrary and cruel, have been absolutely necessary, not only for the benefit of Joseph himself, but for his father and for his brothers and for the future of the entire nation. If God hadn't made the decisions that he made, who knows how Jacob and Joseph's lives would have ended up. I, I, I love this. This is one of the things that I think is most revealing about who God is in the book of Genesis because if we were Islamic, those of us in this room, and the God that we worshipped was Allah, right? False God, preached from a false book, generated by a false prophet. Allah, to those who worship him, has to be, in order to maintain his divine freedom, has to be arbitrary, now, uh, this is generally how salvation works in Islam. If I do more good things than bad things, then hopefully Allah will let me in. And you say, what do you mean hopefully? Well, he doesn't have to let me in. I could do 99% good things in my life and 1% bad, but he's God, he can do whatever he wants, and he can keep me out for whatever reason, whatever whim, whatever he chooses. Uh, guys and gals, this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, sometimes makes decisions that we don't understand. But they are never arbitrary. They are never capricious. God is constant in character. God is constant in the execution of his plans. He never, ever changes 
He is always holy. He is always kind. He is always righteous. He is always compassionate. God favors the weaker and the smaller sometimes because this helps achieve his plan. Then we get to chapter 49. Now Jacob calls together, verse 1, all of his sons, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. In God's providence, it's startling here to think, to recognize that all of his sons are still alive, right? The old man has um, survived long enough to see all of his sons become old men, and they're all still here. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. And then he starts walking through the list. There's Reuben, who's mentioned in verse 3. Simeon and Levi, who are mentioned in verse 5. Judah, who is mentioned in 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Zebulun, there in verse 13. Issachar in 14. Dan in 16. Uh, Gad in verse 19. Asher and Naphtali in 20 and 21. And then Joseph. Joseph in 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. And then Benjamin there in 27. If you take a look at that list, you'll notice something startling, that of the 25 verses that are listed there for all of the blessings, 10 of them are specifically about Judah and Joseph. 40% of all the blessings are laid out here verbally in Genesis chapter 49 for just two of the sons, just two. We would have expected the great emphasis of blessings to fall on Reuben, right? Reuben is the firstborn. But Reuben has disqualified himself for his salacious past. Well, then maybe we would have expected that it would have been passed down to Simeon and to Levi, right? The next oldest sons. But we're told over and over again how violent they are, how malicious they are in their hearts. And so they're passed over. And so we get to Judah. Judah's number four on the list. And you're saying, well, uh, Judah's disqualified himself as well. Hello, uh, Genesis 38. Tamar, don't you remember that? But it would seem as though, and I'm just guessing here, so just take it for what it's worth, that in Jacob's eyes, Judah has redeemed himself a little bit by being willing to be a sacrifice so that Benjamin could be ejected from the land of Egypt. He's offered himself in the place of his brother. At least in his father's eyes, I think he's grown in esteem. Take a look just a little bit here at what's said about Judah. Judah, the one who receives the bulk here, is the oldest of Leah's boys. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your brother shall praise you. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Does this remind you of anyone? A lion king from whom the scepter will never pass? Well, it's Jesus who's repeatedly in the New Testament called the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who will reign forever and ever in power and majesty. And then Joseph. And here's where we're going to end here. I, I want to make just some observations about Joseph. Verse 22, he is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bough remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. How? 
How were his arms made agile? How was he maintained, though, assailed by life in Egypt and all of the things that he endured? How has God's providential plan that we've seen him involved in in very particular ways, how has it been wrought? How has Joseph survived? How have we made it to this day as a nation? By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. That's how. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Now do this for me for just a moment. I know not everyone in this room loves poetry. But there is a very beautiful way that Jacob has said this here at the end of Genesis chapter 49. He could have said, uh, our God is omnipotent. And in theological terms, that means that he has uh, unfettered power to the imagination conceivable only by his own mind, right? He is unparalleled. That's not what he says. He says it in an extraordinarily beautiful, an incomprehensibly beautiful way. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, there is there the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Can you imagine the goal to say something like that from Jacob? Greater than the blessings that were doled out by Abraham. Greater than the blessings that were shouted out at my own life by Isaac, my father, are the blessings that I am now prospecting over you, my son, Joseph. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. What do we learn here about the providence of God? That it is exacted by the power of God. And we love Jacob for his faith and the power of God. Do you have faith in the power of God? Not a theoretical or an abstract faith. Not the kind of faith that you would describe in a blue book exam. But an actual, real world faith. Do you have that kind of faith? Do, do this just for a moment. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. Uh, now, I'm sure that you're familiar with Hebrews 11. Uh, there are three words that are used to describe that chapter over and over again. Anybody want to say those three words? Hall of faith. Hall of faith. All these great figures throughout biblical history are enumerated here because of the remarkable things that they have done by faith. It's a way to embolden and encourage the church who is living now in exile here in the book of Hebrews, uh, something that we'll come back to in January. Now, now think about this. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, whom he re received the promises in the act of offering up his only son. Oh, we get that one, right? What was Abraham's great act of faith that got him in the hall of faith? He was willing to offer up Isaac, his only son, the son of his old age, right? of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac, now here's the son, 
Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Isaac could see by faith, even in the misery that was wrought by Esau's malaise and all of Jacob's scheming, that there would be a future for them, right? By faith, Jacob did what? Now, put your hand over there. Let's think about all the things that Jacob has done. All of the scheming, maybe he emerges out of that, right? That's what he's done by faith. Or, or, or maybe it's that he wrestled with God at Peniel, right? And he asks for the blessing by faith. Or maybe that he leads the entire clan from Canaan down to Egypt and that he believes that by faith. But what is he named for here? What is he elicited for? How does he make the list? By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. What's he done? to earn his way into the hall of faith. He's laid out blessings that he will never see. And he believes by the power of God they're going to happen. I don't know how many blessings have been laid out over your life in the New Testament. If we were to count them all and string them all together, the blessing that if we would, by faith, reach out to the grace of God, which condescends to us, that Jesus Christ would live a holy life, die on our behalf, impute his righteousness to us, and rise again. Stay with us every day forever until he gives us new bodies and draws us home to him promises like that do you have faith in promises like that a workable everyday faith that God is who he says he is that he'll do what he says he'll do that he is present and that his providential plan is being worked out even now even in the good things even in the bad things that God is working? Do you have the kind of faith that Jacob had to see it all fall apart and then stand back and wonder as God put it all back together again and know the challenges that would face the future generations but have the courage to say, I am confident and hopeful of this very thing. This God is all-powerful. If he says that all of these things, though maybe they were meant for evil, that they're going to be worked out for good, they will be worked out for good. It's easier said than done. I read a story uh, a couple of years ago. Some fishermen in Indonesia were miles and miles off the coast. Something went wrong with the boat, the boat capsized, and everyone on the boat made it off except one guy. Um, the ship had overturned and was submerged 40 or 50 feet underwater, but he was trapped in the bottom of the hole. And for four days, no food, no water, no light, 
he banged on the wall of the ship on the bottom of the hull. And miraculously, his shipmates believed that somehow or another he didn't drown, that he survived. And they got a crew there and they were able to get him out. And he was not in a right place when they found him. And he kept asking the same questions that he had been asking o- over the last four days. Can anybody see me? Can anybody hear me? Does anybody know where I am? Can anybody see me? Can anybody hear me? Does anyone know that I'm here? No, I don't know that anyone in our room has faced a situation exactly like that, but almost all of us at one point or another have asked this question of God. Does anyone see me? Can anyone hear me? Does anyone know where I am? And Jacob hears these questions and he says, oh yes, be confident of this. There's a God who sees you. There's a God who hears you. There's a God who knows exactly where you are. Let me share with you some really good news. He has a plan. And he is powerful enough to see it to the end. You may not always understand it. But be emboldened by my confidence, Jacob says. He'll be with you. Father, we pray that we would grow in confidence in who you are and in what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.